Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. How can I know the will of God for my life? Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley, and today we are speaking with Dr. David Jones, who is author of the new book, Knowing and Doing the Will of God. Dr. Jones is a colleague of mine, and he is currently serving as professor of Christian ethics, an associate dean of theological studies, and director of the THM program at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, here in Wake Forest. So he is a very busy man. Despite all of his duties and obligations, he's still able to uh, put out publications such as he has authored and co-authored several other several published works, including a book entitled Health, Wealth, and Happiness, How the Prosperity Gospel Overshadows the Gospel of Christ, which uh, is a book that we will be discussing with him in another episode. So you'll want to be sure and join us for that discussion as well. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Dr. Jones. Thanks for having me, Ken. It's uh, good to be here on the podcast. Well, um, your book, Knowing and Doing the Will of God. Uh, in your book, you you uh, have some very helpful categories, and, and being able to sort things is is something that people find very helpful, where they, they, they can have it categorized and sorted for them. And you define three categories of God's will. You speak of his sovereign will, of his moral will, and of his individual will. Could you give us a brief definition of each for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, God's uh, sovereign will is a category that's that's not too controversial. Uh, essentially, just um, you could define it as uh, you know God's uh, superintendence, uh, or perhaps his his knowledge of uh, all that happens. Uh, and so, essentially, there's nothing that occurs uh, that is uh, outside of God's sovereign will. Uh, that pretty much encompass, encompasses everything that exists. And if you were to co- conceive of these three categories uh, as perhaps like an archery target, uh, you know, the, the sovereign will uh, would be sort of, you know, the outer ring, you know, the entire target. And that brings us to the next sort of inner ring, uh, God's moral will. And as an ethicist, I, I like to define God's moral will um, maybe for our listeners, sort of if you would think about the Ten Commandments, you know, what God has revealed to us in his word, uh, what he expects of us, uh, the standard of right and wrong. Uh, and again, going back to my illustration of an archery target, you know, God's moral will um, is encompassed by his, his sovereign will. Uh, and so we could be outside of God's moral will, and we are when we sin, but never outside of God's sovereign will, because God is over all things. 
That brings us then to the third and last category, uh, the, the individual will of God. And, and here is where there is, I guess, kind of some controversy and maybe what separates people that have differing views of God's will. Some people would define God's individual will as a special, specific thing that each Christian uh, is to do. Uh, perhaps, you know, which job to take, uh, whom to marry, which school to attend, perhaps even as fine as, you know, which tie to put on today. Uh, and so if we were to define God's individual will along those parameters, we could then say that God's individual will is sort of a subset of God's moral will. And really the the $1,000 question is, is that last category, God's individual will, a valid category or not. Uh, and much of the book I wrote really unfolds um, the idea of the validity or perhaps invalidity uh, of the idea of a special individual will of God that is separate and distinct from a, a moral will of God. Those are three uh, very helpful categories, and thank you for explaining them so clearly. Uh, when you speak of his sovereign will, um, I think like you said, all Orthodox Christians uh, would affirm that God has a plan and that things are going according to plan. We, it is a mystery to us how it is that God ordained a world in which he permitted evil and sin to occur, but all of us who believe that God uh, exhaustively knows all things and, uh, and is undergirding all things, that in this way, God has a sovereign will, even though it does not conform with the moral will in that he is never pleased when sin occurs, nor does he desire evil to happen. Uh, so that, that distinction between the sovereign and moral will is very helpful. It brings us then to that third category. And um, so why is it so important that we differentiate uh, these three uh, understandings of God's will? I'm thinking now uh, Dr. Jones, you and I have taught for years uh, at a theological seminary, and so many times our students are concerned about God's will in the big questions. Do I marry this particular person? Do I go to this particular field? Do I, uh, do I go in this particular vocation? How is it that these three categories help us in when, when we're thinking about all of those kinds of big-ticket item questions. Yeah, you know, perhaps I could um, maybe ex explain the, uh, the importance of the categories with a, a brief story or uh, illustration. Years ago, I had a student in a class, and, and he was in the, in the class with his girlfriend. And uh, as a matter of fact, I thought that they were married because they always sat together and came in together and left together. Uh, and so I, I just assumed that they, they were married. They were a great couple. And, um, one day, this student, who I'll call, uh, call John, um, asked for a meeting with me after class, and so we sat down, and he said, I have a question for you. I'm, I'm just uh, I'm pondering uh, proposing uh, a marriage uh, to my girlfriend, Jenny. And I said, well, I, I thought you guys were actually already, already married. And I said, so kind of what's your, what's your question? He said, well, I, I'm wondering if, if she's the one um, or, or not. And that was actually the first time I had kind of come across actually this, um, this idea of there, there being uh, the one that we all need to find uh, and, and marry. 
And so what John was doing is he was invoking this category of individual will of God, the idea that God has as a special, specific girl that we're to find uh, and, and to marry. And as he explained to me, his concern was that if she was not, if, she, if Jenny was not John's the one, that he would be marrying someone else's the one. And they would then have to marry someone else who would not be there, the one, who would have to marry someone else. And he was worried that by the cascade effect, he it was would be an infinite regress of... He was, of... was going to destroy Christendom. <laughs> that, that was his concern. And so this is, this is a very weighty question, right? And so he wanted to know, um, you know how he could tell if she was the one or not. And my, myself being raised with a, a different theological perspective uh, than, than John, my understanding was simply... Um, marry a believer, right? The Second um, Corinthians chapter 6, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, uh, you may marry whomever you like, only in the Lord, right? And so my criteria for marrying my wife was, is she a believer? Uh, and yes, she is, so check, and I'm, I'm free to marry her. I'm also free to not marry her. I could marry some other believer. Uh, and so I wasn't concerned with finding a specific girl to marry, worrying that if I made a bad choice, I would destroy Christendom, right? Whereas from John's perspective, that was a very valid concern for him. And somebody who has that type of approach to this question, that's not just an important question in regard to marriage. It's an important question in regard to everything. Because if, if you marry the wrong person, take the wrong job, wear the, the wrong tie, whatever it might be, well, then you kind of run the risk of, of making an irreversible choice. And then you're doomed to live your entire Christian life, really, as a second-class Christian, because you're now permanently outside of God's individual will for your life, because you married the wrong girl, you took the wrong job, you went to the wrong college, whatever it might be. Whereas, if that is a valid approach, um, well, then I could have married the wrong girl, because I wasn't aware that I needed to find the one. I was just trying to conform my theology to how how I read Scripture and marry a believer. And I could be outside of God's will, having married the wrong girl, doomed to live a second-class Christian life. Um, and so it's a, it's a really important question due to the practical consequences of how we approach these concepts of God's will. Uh, and in large part, what we believe about them will govern how we live the Christian life. So if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, and I think what you're saying is so very important and so very helpful for, for uh, Christians today, I find that this kind of question that you just brought up, am I, am I marrying the one? Is this the church I should go to? Uh, all of those kinds of things that are very particular and very definite and that they're asking about. What I hear you saying is that what we should be primarily concerned about is what you call the moral will. Does it fit within the precepts, uh, the precepts of God's word? Does, does, it, does it conform to what he's clearly taught us? And then have confidence in, in, confidence in his sovereign will that he, he will see to it that uh, whatever it is particular he has for us to do will be accomplished. Am I, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, yeah, and so essentially the way I would define God's individual will, um, you know, personally here, and, and of course, you know, I, I mean, Christians disagree, uh, and we want to be charitable, you know, to those who with whom we disagree. But I would define God's individual will as simply God's moral will applied to my life as a Christian. 
and so I, I'm I'm very concerned that I'm a I'm a say a good steward uh, of my spiritual gifts. Right? The uh, it's uh, that's that's part of God's moral will. He expects that of us. First Corinthians chapter twelve. Uh, and, and so I could say that that my uh, spiritual giftedness you know, lies in the realm of teaching the Bible. Uh, and, and so I'm I'm currently you know, serving here at Southeastern, doing that, uh, serving part time at a, at a local church. And I think that that's that's okay. I'm I'm within God's moral will. Um, I, I think I could I, I could leave Southeastern and go teach at a different school uh, or go pastor full time. And I think I would also be within God's moral will. That wouldn't be sinful for me to do. It would be sinful for me to neglect my spiritual gift and to not seek to use it for kingdom purposes because spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the body. And so that would be sinful and wrong uh, for me to uh, hide my light under a bushel right, to, and to not use my gift. I'd be outside of God's moral will. And so God's individual will, simply God's moral will, applied to my particular life. Right? And so essentially since... God's individual will is not specifically revealed in Scripture. What his moral will is, you see, the way you define these things are really going to sort of um, shape the way that you do the Christian life. Because if I do think that I need to find a particular girl to marry, job to take, way to use my spiritual gift, you know, whatever it is I'm, I'm trying to decide, well, I can't find, you know, in, in Scripture, I'm, I'm to marry Jenny, Right. And so I, I then need to craft or develop another means of revelation to get that information. Uh, and so it's going to boil down ultimately, I would say, to really a sufficiency of Scripture question as well, right? I mean, is Scripture sufficient for Christian life and practice, or do I need to become proficient at other means of revelation? You know, fuzzy feelings, angelic visitations. Uh, a check in my spirit, a shiver in my liver, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and so, personally, I'm not looking for those things. Could God do those things? Well, of course, God can do whatever he wants to do, right? But what's normative and what ought I to expect? Uh, is God's moral will, as revealed in Scripture, is that enough? Uh, or is it not enough? And so, you see, we started kind of with the, the will of God question, but you see the vast implications, right? I mean, it, it, it spills over into a sufficiency of Scripture question, a doctrine of revelation question, uh, and a thousand other issues that are tied in. So looking at Scripture and its sufficiency, um, one finds a, a plethora of, of different men and women at times in the economy of God's work in which uh, someone, whether it's David or whether it's Jeremiah, uh, receive, not just perceive, uh, receive a very distinct call of God. Samuel hears the voice of God in the dark as a child. And, you know, the advice Eli gave to him, you know, next time you hear the voice say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. so we find uh, those kinds of examples. And of course, in the New Testament, you have where Jesus calls the 12, they leave their livelihood. Are of course, the remarkably famous account of, of, of Paul or Saul of Tarsus, the Damascus Road uh, experience. So um, 
how then, you, whenever we're talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture itself gives examples of people uh, receiving this type of call, how, how does the concept of calling now fit in to the model of knowing God's will as, as, you're, as you're presenting it to us? Yeah, another great, great question with incredible implications, right? The, um, well, I guess, first of all, I should say, I mean, as, as I said a moment ago, I mean, c- could God do those things today? Uh, of course. You know, God can do whatever he, he wants to do. And, and if God chose to, uh, you know, to appear to someone or to um, work a miracle or for there to be a supernatural sign of some type uh, where someone was called into ministry, called to the mission field, um, could God do that? Uh, of course he could. Of course he could. But what's normative? Uh, what ought we to expect? Right? That's, that's what, I, what I'm, I'm trying to get at with my, my, my short book. Um, I would go to, you know, say for the pastorate, I, I would go, into, I'd go to 1 Timothy 3. Right? I mean, what does Paul say? He says, for he who desires the position of an overseer, right? Not for he who had Jesus appear in his living room and tell him to go be a pastor, right? And so, uh, a desire. Uh, and, and we would say, Ephesians 4, we would say that the, that the gift of the pastor, it's a gift, it's a spiritual gift. Uh, and if we have a spiritual gift as we mature in Christ, so we'll have a desire to use that gift. And so I would say the man who has been given the gift of the pastorate, as he matures in Christ, he will find himself... Um, with an awareness of that, of that. Uh, in a sense, he'll not not be able to do that if that's where his his gifting lies. Uh, and so, I would boil down calling um, perhaps to uh, spiritual giftedness, um, perhaps weighted with opportunity uh, as well. And th- there's a phrase I use in in the book um, that um, the phrase is uh, spiritual expediency. Uh, and so my, what I mean by spiritual expediency, it, it's this. Given my giftedness, given my abilities, my education, my opportunities, my health, my family, and a host of other factors, what's the best way I can deploy this gift uh, for God's kingdom purposes? Um, and whatever the answer to that question is, is what I would say is what you should do. Uh, and so... If I was to say, as I said earlier, that I think I have the gift of, of teaching, uh, the gift of, of pastoring even. Well, I, I was a pastor of a church I started, and it was a great church, uh, and I had wonderful opportunities there, and I could still be there today uh, as, uh, as a pastor in, in that church, and it was, it was wonderful. I have nothing bad to say at all about that opportunity. But lo and behold, out of the blue, I, I get a phone call, and I, I get an offer to come and, and, and teach, teach here at the seminary. Uh, and, and so I, I thought to myself, well, what's most spiritually expedient? I can, I can stay here at this church and keep preaching and teaching you know, these, these 200 people and, and marry them and bury them, and, and that would have been a wonderful thing to do. And I think I could, I could have done that and, and could be doing that, and I'd be in God's moral will. But I thought to myself, but if I go to the seminary, um, well, there I can actually teach the pastors. I can teach the missionaries. I can teach the teachers. And I'll have the opportunity there to impact countless more lives uh, with Scripture, with the Word of God, than I will here at my church. And so it seemed to me to be a, a better deployment of my gifts and opportunities and calling and opportunities 
to leave my church and, and to come join the faculty here, uh, w- which is why I, I did so. And I think that that also is within God's moral will. And so I think both choices were okay because, you see, I'm not trying to find an individual will and connect the dots as if there's something extra apart from Scripture I need to discern to do to keep God happy. I know it keeps God happy. It's keeping his moral will. But what's the best way I could do that? Uh, and so this whole idea of calling, uh, again, I would tie back to, to gifts and, and opportunities. Uh, and I think as God gifts us, so uh, these desires uh, arise, again, going back to First Timothy chapter 3. So, and, and what you're saying is so very helpful because there are those who, as you alluded to a little while ago, who who almost live under the tyranny of trying to discern God's will via their emotions, are their premonitions, are their inclinations, and and that can be a very difficult experience, uh, particularly if one's trying. To, I, I can remember being taught that the peace of God is going to guard your, guide your hearts and minds. So the way you know God's will is is whatever He gives you peace to do well what if you what if you're just naturally anxious about certain things and so one can find that uh, when he or she cannot get settled uh, on a particular issue or question that even induces more anxiety therefore they're convinced that this is not God's will and they can't make any decision at all it, it ends up being a, a pretty vicious circle on the other hand let me let me let me play the devil's advocate here. They would say, well, Dr. Jones, if I followed you, I would end up feeling almost like a deist, where God has wound things up, gave me an instruction book, and said, go, have fun, do what you're going to do. We, we have a higher view of God's sovereignty and, uh, and, and his v- providential activity in our lives than that, don't we? How, how would we understand God still accomplishing what he had for us in particular? within the model you're talking about. Yeah, you know, that's probably um, one of the most common objections that, that I hear um, to, to this teaching. And I, I think it's a really good objection. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be worried if it wasn't raised, you know, by someone who was thinking through, through the implications of, of these things. And I guess my, my response to, to, to that is, is this. I think that people who live under the individual will of God um, model uh, you know, where, where they're getting extra biblical revelation and, op, you know, the peace of God is guiding them, which is interesting. I, we can't chase that rabbit now, but I, I would just maybe challenge our listeners to get out your Bible and look up those four passages where the peace of God is talked about. And what you'll see in each of those occasions is that um, it, it's that we're told that a peace of God comes to us once we decide to keep God's moral will. We're never told that a piece of God will come to us to guide us into an individual will of God. Uh, and so I think the, the order is reversed by people that operate that way. But um, to go back to your, to your question, um, and for folks that live under the individual will of God model, I think that sometimes they may mistake um, extra-biblical revelation that they perceive they're receiving with intimacy with God, and I would I would say yeah well I think it was John Piper who who said said this um, and only the way he could say it 
he said that you know if you live by your emotions and your your feelings and by your perceptions of extra biblical revelation you don't actually need to know god what you need to know is how to work the crystal ball uh, and what he meant is this in in contrast to the model i've been describing thus far in our podcast what I'm saying is this, is that you need to know the Word of God so well. You need to be so close to God that you're, you need to be so mature as a follower of Christ that literally His thoughts are your thoughts, that, that His will is your will because you are that close to Him. And so in the model that I'm describing, far from being deism, it actually is the exact opposite. It, it so relies upon intimacy and relationship with God that apart from that, it couldn't operate. It couldn't operate. And so you need to know the Bible from cover to cover, right? Whereas if you're receiving extra biblical revelation, you don't really need to know God that well at all. Is all you need to know is how to get the revelation, you know, how to work the crystal ball, the quote Piper. Uh, and so I would say because people who maybe have operated under that model have errantly equated extra biblical revelation with intimacy thus what i'm describing might seem like deism but i would say think through the implications uh, of these two approaches uh, and see if perhaps maybe the opposite might be true yeah you the crystal ball uh, analogy is a very good one another one i've heard is that the individual will model expects each and every one of us to be spiritual Sherlock Holmeses, that we're each able to to discern and decipher these clues, these droppings of information, and we put it all together and we say, aha, God plans for me to start a church in X town, marry Y girl, and do Z, go to Z school, or whatever it is that, and, and, and that for those who are able to, to, to figure out the clues, then they're able to find the will of God as if it is a, like I said, a hidden clue or a needle in a haystack. One doesn't find that even among those in the Bible that received a very definite call, like Jeremiah or Isaiah. None of them were looking. None of them were spiritual detectives. God came to them. And I think that that's a very good point that you're making about walking with God and knowing his word, because we do believe that God very much is involved in every life, individual person, uh, that's a follower of Christ. Uh, what you're presenting is something very liberating. Yeah, and, and I've had you know, so many people who have read the book who have come, come back to me, and you know, maybe initially they've actually pushed back and they've, they've been even sort of offended um, by what I've said and, and written. But after sort of thinking it through and praying it through, they've come back and they've said just that. I, I feel like I, I've, been, I've been liberated, uh, that I don't have to worry that I'm a second-class Christian. Uh, and it's so much easier to keep God's moral will. And now I'm so motivated not to sort of try to detect, uh, you know, these clues. But I'm motivated to, to now to study the Bible uh, and, and to be sure that his will is, is my will and yeah, I think of Psalm 37, verse 4, where uh, David writes and says you know, that God will give us the desires of our heart. And there in that passage, David's not saying that God's like a, a genie in a bottle. You know, you have three wishes, uh, and if you just sort of keep God happy enough and you 
toe the line enough, you know, he'll grant you your wishes. No, he's saying that he will give you the desires. That is, he'll put the desires in your heart and mind. He'll give you the desires of your heart. And so as we draw close to God, uh, as his thoughts become our thoughts, so our desires become his desires. And quite frankly, I, I no longer obsess about and ask myself about what's God's will. Because I feel like as I've grown in Christ and as I've matured, I, I just know what his will is because I know the Bible. And so again, a sense of, of freedom and liberation and conformity to Christ as opposed to anxiety about trying to pick up the, the hidden clues that have been hidden by a cosmic Easter bunny that expects me to find them. Now, the, 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 the classic example, I think, that really does exemplify what you're talking about is Joseph. Joseph really didn't know God's will uh, in terms of you're going to end up in Egypt somehow, uh, but he did know God's moral will, and what we find during his whole very circuitous, dramatic 20-year journey from being sold into slavery to finally becoming the vice-regent of Egypt is that we find over and over again he's left with moral choices and temptations and challenges, and he knows the will of God in particular tests, and he obeys God's will as revealed to him. And what do you know? At the end, he not only is right in the middle of God's will, God uses him providentially to save his whole family. And what does he say to his family who really treated him terribly? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We've been listening to Dr. David Jones. Tell us again the, the title of your book, Dr. Jones. Yeah, the book is Knowing and Doing the Will of God. Of course, available wherever fine books are sold, <laughs> Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, etc. If you've enjoyed this conversation and you want to know more, let me encourage you to pick up a copy of Dr. Jones's book. Uh, this is uh, the Christ and Culture podcast, and I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, wishing you a good day. <laughs>